Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Thanks so much for being here this morning at our 915 service. It's awesome to see all you guys here. Uh, my name is Seth. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Um, and if you don't know me or if we've never had the opportunity to interact, I would love for you to maybe just tap me on the shoulder uh, as, as, uh, after the service concludes today in the cafe. Listen, uh, <clears throat> after I preach, since most people don't know me, I'm often standing all by myself out there after service anyway, so please, I need friends, okay? So no. anyway, again, thank you so much for, uh, for being here this morning, and thanks for being here uh, to uh, connect with this series that we have been in. So if you have been with us the last mo- uh, couple months, maybe three months, uh, you know that we have been in a series that we have been calling Jesus Come and See. And so basically what we've been doing in the series is we have been taking a look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, specifically from one firsthand eyewitness, first century account, an account that is given to us by this guy named Matthew, who writes the Gospel of Matthew, a gospel that bats lead off in the section of our Bible that we call the New Testament. And the reason why we're pursuing Matthew's take is is this. Listen, we know that Jesus is important, and we know that Jesus has a lot of significance, and uh, it's not just significance and importance for the people back in the first century when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, when he was talking and interacting with other people. We know that Jesus has significance and influence and impact in our lives and in our world today, but we often find ourselves getting a kind of a hand-me-down Jesus, an inherited Jesus that we glean from people or figures of influence in our past and in our upbringing and in our growth, figures who were very influential to who we are and who we became. And so rather than getting a second-hand, third-hand, multi-generational account of who Jesus is, we are just dead set on going back to a firsthand eyewitness and to see what Matthew has to say. And we've been journeying throughout his gospel together throughout this series in the last couple months. And so today is really gonna be no different. We're gonna continue in that journey. We're gonna take our next steps and we are gonna take a look at a passage of Jesus' teaching uh, out here in Matthew 23, <clears throat> one through 12. So I would encourage you, just invite you, if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and start making your way there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible here with you, that's okay. Everything that you need is going to be on the screens behind me. Um, And we also have some black Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you want to grab one of those, it would be on page 692 in those Bibles. And then lastly, if you do not have a Bible to call your very own, you don't have one at home or any copy of the Bible, we just want you to go ahead and take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. It's just kind of our way of saying not only thank you for being here, but also just to maybe hopefully express and reflect our commitment to God's word and getting that into everyone's hands. So you can make your way out there at this time. Uh, So as you're doing that, uh, what I thought I'd do to kind of begin this morning is to share a little story uh, that will hopefully reflect a bit about my life and especially my life with my family. And hopefully this story will also begin to uh, connect some dots uh, in terms of what we're going to find in Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 23 today. So if you know me, uh, again, I'm Seth, and I have, uh, I've been married to my amazing, wonderful wife. Like, she was sitting here at 515 service last night, and I was distracted by her radiance and her brilliance, right? So, and I love you, honey, wherever you are, if you're in the room or not. But, so I've been married to her for 16 years, 
And it'll be 17 on October 5th of this year. 17, 17 years on October 5th. And man, she is amazing. And throughout the course of our history together, we have uh, we've produced three amazing kids too. So we have three kids. We have two girls, Elena and Hannah, and we have one boy named Caleb. And let me just tell you, I, I love my wife. I think she's amazing. But I think sometimes I think about my kids. Uh, I think often as parents, and me especially as a parent, I can uh, get down or negative on some of the struggles that my children face. But all in all, I think sometimes it's good as a parent to just step back and think, man, these kids are awesome. And, and really, like, maybe it's cliche for some of us, but it's the truth. Like, our kids are blessings from God. They are a gift that God gives us. And I think that this is no exception with my children. My kids are awesome. I, I love my kids. They, like, we play together. We have fun together. We just interact in these really deep and meaningful ways. And so my kids are so amazing. And if you were to ask me uh, why I think that my kids are so amazing, I would just tell you resolutely that it is because, hands down, I am the greatest father that these children could have ever asked for. I, I, I care for them, I provide for them materially and financially, I play Legos with them, which is entirely for their benefit, it has nothing to do with my joy and happiness, right? So love my kids, they are amazing. But I've got to be honest with you, there are times in our relationship together uh, where we struggle a little bit to meet up to the uh, lofty, rainbow-puking unicorn presentation that I've, give, that I've given you of my relationship with my kids. And I have actually become convinced that every relational breakdown that I have with my children is always connected to my 2010 Dodge minivan. Always my minivan. Listen, guys, there is something that happens to my children when my wife and I cram the three of them in the back of that sucker, okay? They, like, they go from being amazing little angels that make you think of precious moments porcelain dolls all the way to being like spawns of orcs of Mordor or something like that when they get into this car. And so really, for me, it's the sheer volume. It's the volume. <laughs> yeah, I got a yes, and you know what I'm talking about. It's the sheer volume in this confined, tiny little space. I, I sometimes lie awake at night just wondering, how did these children get to be so loud? How did they get to be so obnoxiously loud, especially when they, they're dropped in this car? And actually, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I got my answer to that question. And I've slept really well ever since, mind you. And so um, <clears throat> my family and I, we, we crammed the kids in, in, the, in the back of the minivan. And we were on our way to Life Group, which, by the way, if you go to Life Group and you're a parent, you know that every catastrophe happens when, you, when you're about to set out to Life Group, right? So we get in the car, and uh, we, we make our way out, and we, we get set, set out on this journey. And then it starts, right? Like it starts building more and more. The volume increase, increases, increases. And these kids start weaving in and out of being really loud, like spontaneous outbursts of hilarity. And then weaving in and out of like, you're in my seat. Here's the dividing line. Don't come over here. Like, and it gets louder and louder. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the mature adult card on this one today. I'm not going to let this one get to me. So I calmly said, kids, let's keep it down, okay, keep it down. But we continue on the journey, and it just, it's like one ear and out the other, and it continues to build and build and build, and the volume gets, and I tried to hold it together, guys, I really did, I really did. But it got so loud, I just, I broke, I broke, and here is what happened. Everyone, be quiet! 
I have told you time and time again, when we are in the car, 12 inch voices, it's one ear and out the other with you guys. We tell you this constantly. It's disrespectful, it's rude. Listen to mom and dad, no more talking for the rest of the ride. And, wow, that's awesome. So it got quiet, it got quiet. And in that moment, I had a revelation, a revelation. I am the loudest member of our family. <laughs> I am the loudest member of our family. And it's not just in, it's not just, so by the way, uh, in my car, I have affectionately referred to the sliding doors in the back of the minivan as the gates of hell, right? So not just when I'm riding in the gates of hell am I loud, right? I'm loud all the time. If you were a fly on the wall in my house, you would know that I too weave in and out of spontaneous outbursts of crazy. It's just super loud. And frustration that where I raise my voice toward my kids, I am the loudest member of my family. And I thought in that moment, I realized, man, you know what? I have bought into this posture of parenting that I swore when I became a parent that I would never buy into. And it's that posture of do as I say, not as I do. Do as I say, not as I do. And as I looked into the rearview mirror and I saw the quivering chins of my children, I realized, man, this kind of posture of authority, this kind of posture of leadership, of parenting, can have such devastating consequences to the people that we love and care for the most. Now, for you parents out there, it may not be riding in the gates of hell where this shows up, but there are other environments where it appears. But I actually don't think that you need to be a parent to understand what I'm talking about. I think in our world today, there pervades in our culture this do as I say, not as I do mentality. And we can see it in a variety of places. Some of us, we even think about our American government and the political system. We think about our representatives. And immediately what comes to mind is, yeah, that's do as I say, not as I do kind of leadership, isn't it? Like you legislate and you make all these laws and you mandate that we pay all these taxes, and yet it feels like you're above that law, right? It feels like these things don't apply to you, so you should do this. And so we say in election season, like, man, there's a sewer in Washington. We need to get rid of these representatives in our government, replace them with new people. Why? Well, because they're just really concerned with lining their own pocketbooks and, and, and aggrandizing their own reputation. For some of us, when we think about bad leadership, do as I say, not as I do kind of leadership, man, we think about our workplace, maybe our boss, or maybe your CEO, you think we're a team and you're mandating that we do all these things to promote the company and yet it feels like you're off in your cushy corner office on your computer all day playing Minecraft or something. And yet for some of us, when we think about really bad leadership, our minds actually drift toward the church because there have been leaders in the church in the past that feel like they're unwilling to lift a finger to help us grow closer to Jesus and what that means. And we, we, we know from firsthand experience the devastating consequences of bad, do as I say, not as I do, kind of leadership. Now, fortunately for us, Jesus has something to say about this kind of leadership. And Jesus also has something to say about reorienting ourselves to what good, godly leadership might look like. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to begin talking about here in Matthew 23. So as we dive in, let's unpack a little bit 
And let's unearth what Jesus has to say about the importance and the nature of good leadership. All right, so this is what Matthew 23 says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Say that five times fast, by the way. (laughs) So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So Matthew begins here, and he says that Jesus is, again, he's, uh, he's got a crowd gathered, and there's disciples in this crowd. And Jesus introduces this idea by saying that the religious leaders, so these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Jesus acknowledges that these religious leaders have authority in the Jewish religious system. They have power, and they have positions of prestige. And Jesus says this, he says that these guys, he says, sits in Moses' seat. And Moses' seat, that is simply a figure of speech that refers to the fact that the Jewish religious leaders had, again, positions of authority to interpret the 613 commandments that were found in the Old Testament, commandments that they and the Jewish people believed were to be obeyed and followed because they believed that these commandments came from God himself. And these religious leaders, when they sit in Moses' seat, it's a way of referring to their interpretation of how these 613 laws were supposed to be obeyed and then how they enforced that obedience on the people. They mandated that the people would follow these things, these laws, in certain ways. So Jesus acknowledges, yeah, these guys are the ones, they have the power. They have the authority in our religious system. But the conclusion that he draws from the presence of their authority is rather curious to me. I don't know if it is to you. Jesus says that as a consequence of them holding these positions of power and authority, he says, as a result, guys, listen to me, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. Be careful to do everything that they tell you. Now, if we were aware of the very stormy relationship that existed between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, a stormy relationship that's chronicled and litters the pages of the 22 chapters that come before Matthew 23 in Matthew's gospel, man, we might think that Jesus would say something very different here. We might think that Jesus would say, okay, listen, these religious leaders, they hold these positions of power and they leverage that power for control and coercion. So as a result of the authority and power they possess, get rid of it. Cast off the nasty, negative, burdensome yoke of the Pharisees. Stick it to the man. Be free. Do your own thing. But notice that's precisely what Jesus does not say here. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Authority's there. And it's there for a purpose. So insofar as they are teaching you the 613 commandments of the law, the words of God, do it. Follow what they're telling you. And so what's interesting here is Jesus's response is decidedly not anti-authoritarian here. As though to say, as though Jesus might say, well, listen, so the answer to bad leadership is that we should cast leadership off altogether. No. If there's one thing that Jesus is saying is that the answer to bad leadership is not no leadership. The answer to bad leadership is good leadership. And Jesus points to this idea that the issue that is presented with the religious leaders, the problem that they had, is not with the presence of authority. The problem that the people were experiencing the weight of was not with the presence of the authority of the religious leaders. It was with its exercise. It was with the way the religious leaders practiced this kind of 
authority. And Jesus here says that these guys buy into a preach but don't practice mentality. And I think as we continue on in the coming verses, Jesus is going to show us that this preach but don't practice mentality, this do as I say, not as I do kind of leadership stems from two primary misunderstandings that the religious leaders had in his day. Two primary misunderstandings. We're going to see this in the coming verses. Number one, the religious leaders, they misunderstand the nature of power. Misunderstand the nature of power and authority. Power being one's capacity and ability. That when that ability is acted upon, there is a tangible difference that can be made in the world. They misunderstand power and authority. And then we're going to see that they also have a misunderstanding of prestige and honor. This would be notoriety, right? Prestige, honor. So a misunderstanding of power and authority and a misunderstanding of prestige and honor. So here, let's move on to verse four. We're gonna see this first one, this misunderstanding of what true power really is. So Jesus goes on and he says, these religious leaders, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus here starts to employ a little bit of imagery, and it's the imagery of an oxen who is hitched up by a yoke to a cart and is carrying a heavy burden. Now, as we look at this, if we were just going to dust by this passage, we might assume that this term heavy and this term cumbersome here would simply be a negative thing. It simply refers to the great amount of weight and pressure and unnecessary pressure at that that was on the people to respond to all the obligations that the religious leaders were heaping on the people to obey and observe. Because in Jesus' day, the religious leaders were not only mandating that these 613 laws were to be obeyed meticulously by the people. They also had their own laws and interpretations that they would stack on top of that. So we might think that when Jesus says, man, these guys, they tie up heavy, cumbersome burdens, that the weight is so heavy that it's just continually stacked on the people in such a way that eventually the oxen's leg gives out and the oxen is crushed under the sheer weight of responsibility of the load that needed to be carried. But it's interesting here, the word heavy, and scholars have noted this, the word heavy refers less to the amount of weight that's put on the people, and it has more to do with the distribution of that weight. Catch that? Less with the amount of weight that's on the people, but more with the distribution of that weight. There's one scholar, John Nolland, who puts this really well and explains it. He says the scribes and Pharisees, again, these religious leaders, do not want to offer help to the people who are struggling to carry the loads that have been defined for them by the very same scribes and Pharisees. Now catch this. The imagery is probably not of helping carry the load. So in other words, the load's just too heavy, I can't handle it, and the religious leaders would have to take stuff off. He says, no, the imagery is probably not of helping to carry the load, but of what? Moving the load around to produce better weight distribution, a better center of gravity. The scribes and Pharisees are accused of not being willing to lift a finger to help with the fit of the load. As though the load itself is a responsibility that was given to the oxen or given to the religious leaders to carry toward a destination successfully. The problem with this leadership is that they're unwilling to help situate it in such a way that produces success for the people in observing God's law. 
Now think about what this says about the nature of leadership in Jesus' mind and in his teaching. It says that leadership, good leadership, has accompanied with it the, the qualities of compassion and willingness that leaders, Jesus says, are to see and understand the challenges that people face in life, the challenges that people they are leading face in life, and that they are so to be moved by compassion toward these challenges that they will invest every ounce of themselves and their ability and every resource that they possess that's at their disposal to help situate the load in such a way that it sets people up for success in the load and the responsibility that God has indeed given them in their life. So Jesus says that, man, leaders in my kingdom are those who pour themselves out. Power is the capacity and ability to exert one's energy and all of one's efforts so that a difference can be made in the life of someone else. So Jesus here says that the first principle of good leadership, of godly leadership, is that godly leadership is equipping leadership. Leaders are those who look at the situations of others and do everything that they can to equip them with the fit of the load that they have to carry in their life. So Jesus again begins here by redefining and reorienting our understanding of what true power in leadership is all about. It's about giving and equipping. And now in verse five, he's going to move to this misunderstanding of prestige and honor and notoriety. He says, everything the religious leaders do is done for people to see. He says, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. So these guys apparently are all about, they think notoriety, success, and fame is all about people seeing what they do. And so reveling in the greatness of who they are that they become puffed up and honored in their own sight. And Jesus says they do everything for people to see. And then he makes a reference to two things here as examples of this puffed up attitude of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. What the heck is Jesus talking about here? What are phylacteries and tassels? Well, if you think about phylacteries, phylacteries were essentially small containers. Okay, so they were small containers that would fold in the middle and inside of these containers, there were small pockets where tiny pieces of wrapped up parchment would be placed. And on these tiny pieces of wrapped up parchment, to say that five times fast too, uh, there were Old Testament verses written on them. So basically Bible verses that were wrapped up in this parchment, put in this container, closed up, and these containers were fastened to the forearms and the forehead by leather bands. So actually, in archaeological digs, archaeologists have unearthed ancient phylacteries. Here's a picture of one right here. So you can see the concept here, right? You have this container. It folds in the middle here, and there's four spots right here. And by the way, these are not doobies. These are uh, the tiny, <laughs> tiny pieces of parchment that are rolled up and wrapped up and corded together. And again, the, the, the container would be shut, and leather bands would tie them to the forearms and the four head. Now tassels looked a little something like this. You can see this really creepy Jewish guy here. Uh, his tassels on his garment. This would have been a very common 
on the garments and the robes of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And Jesus again says, these are so long and elaborate. They're like trailing them as they walk in the dusty roads of Palestine in that day. And again, pardon this guy's creepy expression. Actually, is that, is that Pastor Tony? Is that, no, no, that's Pastor Tony. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I'll just give you a second for that to sit there, right? Get it ingrained in your head. He's going to kill me for that one, I guarantee you. Months, months back, he said I sang like a dove. I had to get him back, you know, like, so one of those. But again, all kidding aside, these tassels and these phylacteries were common. They were everyday, like, common uh, accessories on the garments of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So now here's a good question. Maybe this is the question you're already asking. Where did this come from, right? Where, where did these things come from? What is the origin story of phylacteries and tassels? Well, it's very interesting if you begin to mine the Old Testament a little bit, you discover that phylacteries and tassels were actually urged by God for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people to wear. So if you think about phylacteries, if you go back to a place like Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, look at what it says here. God is speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses. Look what he says. Fix these words, the commandments, the word of the Lord. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. How are they to do that? Well, you're to tie them as symbols on your hands. And you're to bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. These phylacteries were to be symbols of something. And they were to be symbols that would be attached to the body in two strategic places. Attached to the mind and the forehead. In other words, that this is a symbol that God's word is to be heard, is to be believed on in the mind, and that one's person is to be entrusted entirely to who he is in response to that word. That God's word is to be affixed to the mind to be believed on and also affixed to the forearms. That God's word is not just meant to be believed and bought into, but it's meant to translate into action and practice and response. A phylactery is a, simply a symbol, a tool, a gift that God gave to his people to remind them of his love and his faithfulness and of the necessity of responding to his word in obedience. Now, tassels, you look at Numbers 15, 37 through 39. Again, the Lord is speaking to the Jewish people. He says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites. This is what you're going to say to them. Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. Why? Well, you're going to have these tassels so that you can look at them. For showmanship? No. So you will remember all the commands of the Lord. God's word is to be heard and believed on. That you may then obey them. That God's word is to be responded with action and obedience. That you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own heart and eyes. Both phylacteries and tassels are symbols and gifts that God gives to his people to remind them that he is a speaking God and that he longs for his people to respond to him 
in active obedience. Now think about then what Jesus is saying and what he's confronting in Matthew 23 when he references these phylacteries and these tassels and the attitude of the religious leaders or the attitude that they took toward these things. Think about it for a second. Jesus is essentially saying that these guys took the very word of God he took the very, they took the very tools that God had given them to pour themselves into the people and equip them for life. They were to be reminders of his goodness and the importance of the people responding. And they twisted these very symbols that God had given them for their own showmanship, for their own pride, for their own ego. And actually, if we continue on in the passage in Matthew 23, all the stuff that appears following this is much the same. Jesus says, these religious leaders love the place of honor at banquets. Banquets were feasts that were baked in in perpetuity into the Israelite calendar, into the Jewish calendar. And these feasts were always tied to some great act of God of salvation that occurred in the Old Testament. Feasts, banquets, were supposed to be spots and symbols to commemorate the greatness of who God is and his faithfulness and the desire that he had for people to respond to that faithfulness. He says the mo- they take the most important seats in the synagogues. Synagogues were like weekend services, They were a a once-a-week gathering place for the people of God so that they could be reminded again of the great story of salvation that God wrote throughout their history. He says they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Marketplaces were the common spot of social interaction in Jesus' day. And it was the place where people were supposed to interact with others and share that same great story on a personal level with their family, their friends, and their loved ones. As a matter of fact, the early church leveraged the marketplace for the propagation of the gospel. Listen, the reason why the good news of Jesus went from a tiny spot with 500 people believing it in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth and drops in our lap today is because early Christ followers went to the marketplaces and they shared the good story of Jesus with those they loved and interacted with. And to be called rabbi, rabbi essentially was a teacher. One who, again, explains the story of salvation that God wrote in the Old Testament and invites that same experience for people who would buy into his agenda. The origins of every single one of these things can be traced back to a dual purpose to hear from God and respond to him in obedience. But when leaders twist, when leaders take the opportunity that they have to love, honor, and glorify God by pouring that story into other people so that they can be equipped and situated to carry the great load of responsibility that is theirs to carry before God, When leaders twist, when they move away from wanting to love, honor, and glorify God, they will always take the very symbols and the gifts of God and twist them for their own sadistic purposes. And Jesus actually has a word that he uses to describe this whole wicked system. And the word he uses is hypocrisy. 
hypocrisy. This is a bell that Jesus rings six more times in the verses following our passage today. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You hypocrites, you hypocrites. Hypocrites, you took the very gifts and symbols of God that were intended to be poured into others to remind them of his faithfulness and the importance of response and action, and you twisted them for your own self-centered motives. And truth be told, guys, I, I actually don't think that we need to time warp all the way back to the first century to sit in front of Jesus when he was actually saying this to know exactly what he's talking about. Because many of us have experienced firsthand the absolutely terrorizing, detrimental, and excruciatingly painful effects of a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of hypocritical leadership. Some of you sitting here today are still reeling from the experience you had of the person that you trusted in your life to use the very symbols of God and to pour themselves out and into you. You trusted them to lead you in a relationship with God, but it was clear at the end of the day that all they were interested in was self-promotion. All they were interested in was taking life from you rather than imparting life into you. And so for some of you, and I'm in this boat too, guys. For some of you, you have names of people in the past who did this to you. And when their names come up in conversation or when their picture flies by your Facebook feed, man, there is an anger and a bitterness and a rage and a resentment that erupts inside you. And I know the narrative that comes into my mind. I say, hypocrite, you were supposed to equip me but all you did was take glory for yourself. You hypocrite, you were supposed to show me what God was like, not just in what you said, but in how you loved me and other people. Now I not only hate you, I'm frustrated by the vision of who God is that you gave me. And many of us say, you hypocrite. And the thing that comes into our mind is, man, you deserve to burn. Now listen, I think that Jesus finds hypocrisy so detestable because what it does is it replaces worship of God, the one who is worth it and worthy to be honored, magnified, and glorified the creator of the universe, the author of salvation. Hypocrisy replaces worship of God with the exaltation of self. It puts us in his seat. It replaces worship of God with the exaltation of self. And here's the tricky part. It does so in the name of worshiping God. Did you catch that? Hypocrisy replaces worship of God with exaltation of self, and it does it all in the name of worshiping God. That these people, this bad leadership, man, they take God's gifts, gifts that were intended to help others grow, and they use it for their own selfish motives. And Jesus actually says that these guys are really easy to spot if we know, what, if, if we know this is what we're looking for. They're really easy to spot. 
And many of us find it very easy to do so, right? But here's the thing, and allow me to say this with as much gentleness as I possibly can from my heart. If there is one thing that I have learned from my 2010 Dodge minivan, it's this, is that hypocrisy is not just out there, is it? Hypocrisy is not just out there. If there's anything I've learned from my minivan, it's that hypocrisy lives right in here. And why is that? Well, because I know from the, the biblical story that I am born with a sinful nature. I'm messed up. And, and part of the rebellion that's within me that comes from that sinful nature is a rebellion that will look at every turn to replace the God who is on the throne of the universe with myself. Hypocrisy lives in here because of my sinful nature, my tendency, and my proclivity to exalt myself above everything else. Now, even as I say this, I know that some of you might be thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, good, good stuff, I guess, but man, I'm not a religious leader, right? I'm not a pastor. I'm not some spiritual guru. I don't even claim to be such. Listen, if that's you, I hear, I hear what you're saying, but I think this still very much applies to all of us. Because I don't think that... Um, Jesus tells this story, or we have this story in our Bible, so that we can simply stand at a distance and look at all the hypocritical people in the world and wag our finger, as though Jesus just wanted to gather the crowds and the disciples around him so that he could have a little club of people that smoke cigars and wag fingers and say, listen, look at that hypocritical, wow, can't believe it, he's going to burn. Why does Jesus tell us this story? Why do we have this in the Bible? And I think the answer to that is pretty clear. The answer to that is pretty clear. Jesus provides the example of the religious leaders as a warning to all who would look to pursue him in his life in discipleship. It's not just for the people with the fancy titles that exist in front of their names. It's because I think Jesus is implying this when he says, and when he gives these warnings about hypocrisy to us, I think he's saying that, man, every single one of us is called to lead someone. Every single one of us is called by God to lead someone. Some of us in this room will be charged with leadership over thousands. Many of us in this room are being asked and called by God to lead one. Our kids our spouse, your spouse, someone in the workplace who needs mentored, someone who is crying out, who wants to know who Jesus is, who wants to investigate, and needs to be poured into in a disciple-making relationship. In other words, investing in the growth of another in their relationship with Jesus for the purpose of them flourishing in that relationship. The reality is Jesus just doesn't tell this to a bunch of religious leaders to wag the finger. Jesus tells us this because we are all called to lead someone. And he wants to lead us 
out of our hypocrisy and bad leadership and into the freedom of the leadership that he desires. So as a consequence of that, we might ask one final question. All right, so what exactly is the antidote to hypocrisy, hypocritical leadership? Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer at the end of this passage. He says, listen guys, huddle up. The greatest among you will be your servant, right? The one who invests and exhausts all their energy and every resource that God has given that's at our disposal to pour into someone else so that they can shoulder the load. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says that the antidote to hypocrisy, the antidote to bad leadership is humility. It's humility. It's this willingness to pour oneself out in totality for the benefit of another person, to lead them into relationship with God using all the symbols and the tools that God has given us and that are at our disposal to lead that person into life. What I love about this is Jesus is not, Jesus doesn't just teach it. Jesus exemplifies the whole deal. <laughs> Jesus is the source and the model for spiritual leadership. Showing us that the way of humility is the way of greatness and the way of purpose. Don't miss this right here. Jesus, this one, he is prepared to practice what he preaches. In four chapters, Jesus will ascend a hill with a cross on his back and he will be willing to serve us to the uttermost to die for that same sin and rebellion that exists in us that tempts us so often to replace or to leverage God's symbols for our own power and privilege. And Jesus practices what he preaches. He bends down low to serve us in our, at our point of need and lead us into life. He practices it. He is the good leader who humbled himself by becoming like us and succumbing to a brutal death in our place. So why? That we might live in the freedom of being led by a good God. But also to be increasingly equipped and grow to lead others to that same hope that is offered in Jesus Christ. Good leadership. The band's gonna come up at this point and uh, some of you might be asking, okay, I get it, I understand the principle, I understand the antidote to bad leadership is not no leadership, it's good leadership. Power should be redefined as my ability to pour into someone else. And prestige is defined as my willingness to do that and use God's resources and symbols to do that. But what is something concrete? What's a takeaway? What's an action step that I can take right now? Well, I think we are given this amazing portrait of humility, being led out of hypocrisy and into humility when we place Jesus at the center, at the center of our focus, right? And so one of the ways that we can be led out of hypocrisy is simply to confess the hypocrisy that Jesus exploits in us or, or, or helps us to see 
in our own hearts and lives. Not pointing the wagging finger out at somebody else, but owning it and being led by him. Jesus exposes our hypocrisy. And there's this amazing passage in scripture out of 1 John. And there John says, man, if we confess our sin, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from things like hypocrisy. I love what John says there because he simply says, if we confess those things, in other words, if we say the same things that God says about that sin, about what Jesus has exposed in our lives, man, Jesus is faithful. And because of the cross, he's faithful to take away that sin and to cleanse us from things like hypocrisy to lead us in humility. So I would say that maybe for some of you today, the first step, a concrete step, is to simply confess the hypocrisy that Jesus is exposing in you right now. And I don't think that there is a better spot to do that than in the context of worship. So the band is gonna sing, right? Or we're gonna play and we're gonna sing together. This is a perfect environment. What is singing these songs, but like literally we have the language on the screen to declare about the greatness and the majesty and the goodness of God. That is the perfect environment to be led out of our self-centered, self-absorbed, inward-focused mentality. is to declare the truth about who God is, to confess the things that Jesus is exposing in us right now, and live in the freedom and the healing of all that he offers. I would encourage you, as we sing, sing from your heart, declare the goodness of God, confess your hypocrisy, and live in freedom. And then finally, as a potential action step, walking out of these doors today, again, God has given us symbols. He's given us tools and resources that we might be able to fix Jesus at the center of our focus on a constant basis. These resources are things like God's word, the Bible, that we believe that God speaks through this book to us and our circumstances. And it puts Jesus at the center So maybe for you this week, it looks like doubling down on, I'm going to dive into God's word every single day this week and follow Jesus into humility. For some of you, it might look like taking that first step. It's a nervous step, but taking that step to get into or check out a life group this week. Because part of putting Jesus at the center of our focus is being willing to rally around with those who are trying to do the same, to learn in accountability what it looks like to be God's people, what it looks like to be humble, just like Jesus is. Bottom line, whatever we decide to do, don't do nothing. The opportunity is on the table to confess freely and to use the tools that God has given us so that we can be led out of hypocrisy into humility, and pour ourselves into others who God has called us to lead. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we celebrate who you are. We so appreciate that you're not just willing to tell us what God's great plan and design for us as human beings is. You modeled it for us. You demonstrated greatness. Jesus, you, you sacrificed everything so that we could have life and we could know what true life and relationship with God and relationship with each other really looks like. 
Jesus, we just take this moment to say thank you for doing what you did, for humbling yourself, not just to become like us only, but to be humbled to the uttermost, to die the brutal, horrible death on the cross for our sake so that we could live in the freedom of following you into life and following you into what true godly leadership looks like. Jesus, convict our hearts right now by your Holy Spirit that works in and through us. Help us to see the areas where we have been hypocritical and help us to be reminded that because of the cross, we can freely hand those things over to you and find forgiveness and find healing and we can see the change that will take place and play out in our lives as a result. Jesus, help us to keep you in focus now and as we leave this place together and even bring to mind those in our lives that you are calling us to lead, to pour ourselves into as a good response to the great love and example that you have given to us. Jesus, we thank you and we say it all in your great name. Amen.